Okay, I'm going to pick it up again today in Second Chronicles, uh, where we left off yesterday. I, I know some of this is going to be repetitious, but uh, we'll skip quickly over some of the things that are very repetitious. But each one of these accounts adds a little bit to the story. They're not written all exactly the same. Uh, yesterday we closed in chapter 29 of Second Chronicles uh, about them singing praises with gladness and the instruments they used and how much music was a part of what Hezekiah was reintroducing uh, along with the Psalms of David, which we sing today, that Herbert Armstrong had his brother uh, set the music. Uh, I'm, I'm always grateful for that when I look at a lot of the Protestant music and how um, syrupy and how emotional it is. Some of the words are good and some of them are not hot, not good at all. But if we just use the Psalms, all the words are good. And many of his tunes are just absolutely beautiful. Some of them are a little harder to sing. Uh, and I'm amazed that we've sung out of that hymn book for 50 years or more. And uh, that actually a lot longer than that. That I think the first edition came out in 1953, so nearly 70 years. And there's still a few in there we don't know. And one of the reasons we don't know them is they're really hard to sing, hard <laughs> to play on the piano. So, uh, but every once in a while we'll get into a new one that I had over the years and think, man, why didn't we used to sing that? Because it was really a beautiful one, but we just hadn't learned it. So anyway. That's up to the song leaders. Uh, mind them if we don't know them all. Anyway, they had the music there, sang the psalms. Uh, then Hezekiah answered in verse 31 and said, You have now consecrated yourselves unto the eternal. Come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the eternal. We don't do the physical sacrifices now, but uh, our sacrifices are more of a of a willing mind and in presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice as Christ did his. Of course he presented it as a as a dead sacrifice as well. So we, we present our bodies a living sacrifice as Romans twelve one tells us, uh, instead of bringing animals and and doing that, because he said the blood of bulls and goats never pleased him. And that wasn't what it was about. It was about the sacrifice of our hearts. And even in the Old Testament, uh, he talks about it being out of the heart, not just the physical. And that's, of course, really emphasized in the New Testament. <clears throat> but they didn't have enough priests, so they couldn't play all the burnt offerings and so on. And uh, this is exactly the same problem that Herbert Armstrong ran into. Uh, didn't have enough people to do the work that needed to be done. When he was there in Oregon, he I've recited this before, but I think it's worth repeating here. Uh, he would go out to these towns around Eugene and Salem and so on and uh, have little evangelistic meetings or tent meetings or whatever you wanted to call them. And uh, people would be interested and they'd start coming. And they wanted to hear more but he had to go back to Portland or whatever, and uh, those little groups that he was trying to establish would just fall apart immediately. 
said, like you in the days of Hezekiah, they didn't have enough priests to get the temple all cleansed, to, uh, to do all the sacrifices and so on. Uh, but the service of the Lord was set in order in the verse 35, and Hezekiah rejoiced in all the people that God had prepared the people, for this thing was done suddenly. So it started out as a very small thing in, in Oregon, but pretty quickly. And there just simply were not enough people to take care of it. Now we'll see here that they didn't get everything in order, so they kept the second Passover, which Leviticus does allow for if you're traveling or giving birth or for some reason, uh, a good reason, you weren't able to be there at the first Passover. Uh, it was instituted that you could go to a second, a month later. That shows right there the absolute importance of the Passover. Without it, there's no plan of salvation. So uh, they did institute that. Hezekiah says, well, we weren't able to do this properly because everything wasn't ready. And Herbert Armstrong began to recognize that he could not do a work that needed to be done in preaching the gospel to the different nations himself. It just was an impossibility. And even though he got on some real small radio stations there in the Portland area, and I think down in Eugene or Salem or somewhere, uh, it wasn't covering much area, and there was nobody to follow up if people did get interested. So he conceived the idea of a college to train a ministry so that there would be people to go out and raise up churches and to take care of them. And it was only after 1947, 8, 9, when they began to send uh, some of the students out on baptizing tours, even in their, I think, freshman, sophomore year. He was desperate for anybody to be able to do what needed to be done and set things in order. So I look upon the beginning of the college as a very, very important part of getting the gospel done around the world, uh, as he tried to do. Uh, it didn't really happen completely that way as he thought it should. But nevertheless, it ties in with the prophecy of Jeremiah. Uh, the Jews were going to go into captivity to Babylon, and there was one guy that tried to prophesy that it would be a very short captivity and they shouldn't go to Babylon and build houses and do all those things because they wouldn't be there long. And it was a false prophecy. Jeremiah says, no, that's not true. It's going to be a long prophecy. I'm talking, I think, around Jeremiah 30, 31, somewhere in there. And uh, a long captivity, I mean. And that they would build houses and settle down and have families because it was going to be a long captivity. And he mentioned 70 years. Uh, Daniel later on mentioned that, that uh, when the captivity had come to an end, uh, Balthasar had uh, been killed and the Persians took over, uh, Daniel made a note of that. Oh, that uh, there was to be a 70-year captivity, and then under Cyrus it was to end right there. So it took a couple of years, and in the third year, uh, they actually 
got out, were given an opportunity to go back to Jerusalem over here and rebuild it. So, uh, it was a long captivity, and I think we'll see something a little later on to show the importance of that here in the end time, uh, that, yes, we did go out, and local churches were made, building church houses, if you will, and places for people to come worship God. Uh, that happened from 1947 forward, and and it was a long time then from there that the church was in within Babylon and headquartered certainly in the midst of Babylon in Los Angeles. Uh, so we had a long, long time there that went on from the beginning in 1926 and 7 until it essentially was over and worldwide done with in 96, 97, somewhere right in there, was about 70 years. And then it was all broken apart and you could go do whatever you felt you should do. A uh, very confusing time because that long period that we had was over. So we had problems then and in the present, just like they had back then, trying to get everything done and not having the personnel to get it done. So I think the parallel there is important to recognize. Uh, but it does say then that they went ahead and killed the Passover. They invited all Israel to come and keep it. Uh, verse 17 of chapter 30 says, For there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. Therefore the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passover for everyone that was not clean to sanctify them to the eternal. So there had to be an animal sacrifice to sanctify each one. And there were lots and lots of people. So this was taking a lot of manpower and a lot of animals to get them all sanctified or set apart or cleansed so that they were ready to keep the Passover. Now today, he tells us to examine ourselves and take the Passover there in First Corinthians. Uh, they had to have an animal sacrifice. So it's, it's different in that sense. But it takes time for you to get yourself sanctified and to examine yourself ahead of taking the Passover. So he says then, for multitude of the people, even many of the, of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, uh, yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord pardon every one that prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed, according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Eternal hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. I think it's interesting there that uh, the Passover had not been kept for a long time as it was written. And worldwide tried to straighten that out because the Jews weren't doing it right. And so we looked at Exodus 12, or Herbert Armstrong did, and he thought he saw how to do it right, so he tried to correct it. Now later on, we found out that even he didn't get it right, that it needed some more adjustment. But uh, here, there was some adjustment needed. Uh, 
But God was willing to forgive. Even though we are not always what we ought to be, we may not be sanctified completely, correctly, and properly, God is willing to overlook a lot of our problems. It has been my experience watching a lot of situations in my own life and other people's lives and in the church that a lot of times God uses us in spite of ourselves. He doesn't use us because we're wonderful and great. He uses us in spite of ourselves. And that's really what he's saying in 1 Corinthians one twenty six. He doesn't call the, the mighty and the noble. He calls the weak and the base. And he, through his power, through his spirit, his capacity, he's able to use us in spite of ourselves. And I think we need to pray that way a lot of times. That, you know, Father, I'm inadequate for whatever it is that you ask me to do. Uh, please have mercy and use me in spite of myself. I know I pray that prayer quite frequently because I know I'm not everything I need to be. So we work on it, but in the meantime, we ask for help and forgiveness, as Hezekiah did here. So they kept the feast seven days, verse 21, with great gladness, and they praised the Eternal day by day, singing with loud instruments to the Eternal. So, again, music was a very great part of the service, and I, we continue to sing hymns at every service. I think that's very important to do. Herbert Armstrong established that in the church, not just, he, he at first used some Protestant songs, and then he began to realize they didn't carry the right kind of emotion and words and so on that were needed, was why he commissioned Dwight Armstrong to set the songs to music. And I'm thankful that we have that. I said it, but I'm saying it again. So, they ate throughout the seven days, and then in verse 23, the whole assembly took counsel to keep other seven days. And they kept other seven days with gladness. So they kept it 14 days at the time of the second Passover, once everything had been set in order. And verse 26, there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there was not the like in Jerusalem. So they rose uh, and blessed the people, the, the Levites, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even to heaven. Now verse 31, or chapter 31, kind of changes what was going on. When all this was finished, the Passover after the second month and the 13 days, uh, all Israel that were present went out to the cities of Judah, and broke the images in pieces, and cut down the groves, and threw down the high places, and the altars out of all Judah, and Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh, until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned, every man to his possession, into their own cities. So, they took it another step. They found they were not keeping Passover right from the days of David and Solomon. Uh, Hezekiah caused that to be corrected, and I'm sure he was very much uh, part and parcel of and gave the orders to 
go out and break down all the idols and the groves and, and all of those things and return to a worship of the true God. So, what did Herbert Armstrong say <laughs> over and over? We will worship the true God, the God of heaven and earth, and only him. And we'll get rid of all the idols and all the false days and all the false language and all the stuff that we've tried to get rid of. Uh, you know, the Protestants kind of soften things, but they use the same expressions. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, instead of using Christ's name out, Outright and saying, "Oh Jesus!" Somehow, a lot of a lot of people do that, but uh, they just shorten it to G's. You hear that quite a bit. Uh, they don't want to say "damn," so they'll say "darn." The Mormons don't want to say "hell," so they'll say "heck." You always know it's a Mormon when he says "by heck," because uh, that's nearly every one of them uses it. So we we need to think about those things. Uh, because we may have shortened it, and yet we're saying the same thing. It's just been not enunciated quite the same way. Anyway, we have to, a lot of things that we had to change and be different about. So Hezekiah appointed the courses of the priests and the Levites after their courses, got that all set up the way it originally had been intended. And then, of course, Christ had set up apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors, and so on in the New Testament. And that's what Herbert Armstrong did. Uh, he did continue with the Protestant uh, democracy or board of elders hiring and firing the preachers. He set it up from the top down. And it took him a while to learn that. He wrote articles about church government very early in the 30s, and he was wrong. Uh, later on, he learned from the scripture how God has set government up from the top down. Uh, children aren't supposed to rule the family. It's supposed to be father and mother children. And uh, the church is the same way. So... Later on, he wrote about government. It became a very, very important thing to know how government within God's kingdom and within his church, which is a type of his kingdom, be set up. Uh, you don't rule from the bottom up. It's from the top down. Uh, Satan decided it was from the bottom up and rebelled against the top. And that didn't work out too well for him. But God is in charge, and everything else is under him, including his son and us and the angels and so on. Now, there are people who later on read something Herbert Armstrong wrote back in the 30s, and they would not allow him to grow. They wouldn't allow him to learn. They were going to hold him to what he wrote in, let's say, 1935 or whatever, instead of what he wrote in 1955. And says, so, well, he had it right, and then he got it wrong. Why? Well, the reason they do that is because they want to rule from the bottom up, and they want to appoint themselves as teachers and leaders. And so they take what he had not learned instead of what he later learned. We all have to grow in the grace of knowledge of God. So, yeah, he approached some things wrongly, but then as time went on, a lot of those got straightened out.
On the other hand, uh, then we went into the ditch on the other side of the road, and government got in the church in some places so drastic and so onerous it was really hard to live in because some of the ministers decided that they were in charge and they got the big head and their ego and vanity got to them, and they did lord it over people. So uh, a lot of us experienced some of that. Well, you know, it takes time to grow. Uh, what about when you're first parents? You'll handle that first kid a lot different than you do the fifth one. I'll guarantee you that. Uh, you learn as you go. <laughs> and uh, from the mistakes you make, you begin to change this, change that, and, uh, and do a better job as time goes by because everything is a learning process. And Christianity is a learning process. And he tells us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. You're never supposed to stop growing. Uh, not only in his grace or his pardon and his love, he wish to grow into that by the way we act, but we're also to grow in the knowledge. And there's not a time when we should quit growing in the knowledge of God. This book contains so much more than any of us have ever grasped. Uh, I've learned more in the last 20 years than I have in the, than I did in the previous 30 or 40 years. Uh, because there's so much here. And I'm sure we haven't learned it all yet. There'll be some more things that we will learn that, uh, oh, why were we overlooking that? I'm sure that'll happen. Because it's a living word. And when we got government right, uh, as I said, in some cases, the big head came with it. We're going to find that that happened here in a little bit with, with Hezekiah as well. Anyway, uh, let's see, down here a little bit into chapter 30. Where did I leave off here? I'm at 31. That's that, that other point I want to pick up when we get to another place. Uh, so he appointed the courses in uh, 31 2, got the government going the right way and kept the new moons and the Sabbaths and the set feasts as it is written in the law of the eternal. Herbert Armstrong instituted those too. They had been forgotten in the days of Hezekiah, and he got them going again. Well, all of Israel had forgotten God's feast days. Almost all of Israel had forgotten his Sabbath. Uh, there were a few who came over from England uh, who understood the Sabbath and understood the holy days. And they quickly were shouted down and Christmas and Easter and all those things, which actually were illegal at the beginning of this country, uh, became the things that we did, which you and I were all doing before we learned the truth. But God sent Herbert Armstrong to restore those things, and he did. And uh, to give a portion of the priests and the Levites, that mentions tithing in verse 5. That was all reinstituted. And then in the third month, verse 7, they began to lay the foundation of the heaps and finish them in the seventh month. Uh, now, what is that heaps referring to here? 
I missed that. I don't know what uh, Jerusalem was built, I think. It's not the heap of Jerusalem. Does, it, does anybody see where it says that? Into the house of the eternal, we've had enough to eat and have left plenty, for the Lord has blessed the people, and that which is left is this great store. They're building the storage back or something here. Let's see. They dwelt in the cities. They brought in the tithe of oxen and sheep and the tithe of the holy things which were consecrated and laid them by heaps. They came in and piled them in great big piles. That's what it's talking about. Uh, you've seen that across the Middle West at times. You have these grain silos that are there and they get them full. And sometimes outside it will be a great pile of grain that they don't have room in storage for. And it's, um, so, God began to bless them. And they had heaps and heaps of grain when they brought the tithes in. And they ate and had plenty left. This great store. And didn't that happen in worldwide, in that sense? Um, we tithed, we gave offerings, and we went from just a very, very tiny work that couldn't afford one 500-watt radio station, grew and grew and grew until there was like $200 million a year coming in. That's a lot of money, $200 million. So that was heaps, heaps of money to be used properly which sometimes was and sometimes was not the case. But we were doing what God told us to do, and that wasn't our problem. That was the problem of the one that had the heap and knew what had to decide where it would be used. But, uh, but it's the same story here that we experienced. And verse 12, they brought in the offerings and the tithes and the dedicated things faithfully. And I think we did over the years. Uh, we learned about first tithe, then we learned about second tithe, then we learned about third tithe, and then there was a time or two I'd kind of approach people and say, well, I haven't told you about the fourth tithe yet. <laughs> you should have seen the look on the face. But, uh, no, I'm just joking. Who's it? That's not every year. We were third and sixth out of seven. But, you know, we did that faithfully, and most people you talk to, when all those things were instituted and did it through the years, they received blessings in those third tithe years that they didn't get in other years. Uh, from out of nowhere, it seemed, uh, things that you thought, how are we going to handle this? How can we pay for this? Uh, and it just somehow worked out. So that it worked. And then once in a while, I get somebody that said, well, I never got blessed. And I wonder, when they did do it, if they had the attitude of, I'll probably not get blessed. The attitude is an awful lot. It is an awful lot. Attitude is probably the most important thing in those, in that, in those terms. If we come with a willing and a faithful heart, a ready mind, as Paul says, 
when God honors and appreciates that readiness of mind, that willingness, uh, he even says that he, he loves the heart of the uh, cheerful giver. Uh, because cheer, cheerful is an attitude. And if we do something grudgingly just because God said so, uh, you know, that's a harder attitude to bless. It's just like your kid. He comes and he stomps his feet and slaps the cabinet and says, I want a cookie. No! It's something to be repaired in that attitude. But what if he comes up and says, Mommy or Daddy, I'm kind of hungry. Would you please give me a cookie? I would be far more prone to give him a cookie with that attitude than I would with the other one. In fact, I would be prone to give him my kind of cookie if I saw that first attitude, which would have been probably a palm on the behind, because attitude is everything. And I've seen people so many times try to discipline their children, and they'll spank them just enough to make them matter, just enough to put them in a worse attitude. And if that's the case, you haven't gained a thing, because they've set their jaw, and they're angry now, and they were still rebellious, and they jerk their shoulder and go in the other room or whatever, and uh, the attitude hasn't changed. And that's still a problem. I always spanked them. I, there wasn't there weren't three little swats for this infraction. There were as many as it took to get a sweet, cooperative, loving attitude. When the rebellion disappeared and they got a little bit scared and then they got repentant, then I knew the job was done. Now they would be pleasant and they would sit in my lap and I could love them and say, Sorry that had to be, but it had to be until your attitude changed, and now you're sweet and you're subject, and now we're done. Now we can be in love, <laughs> you know? And isn't that what God told us? He says he chastens every son whom he loves, and he chastens them until their attitude is right. So he chastened us all by spewing us out of the church, out of worldwide, scattering us everywhere, and he said, as soon as you turn to me with all your heart, I will turn to you, and you will find me. That's in Jeremiah about 31. So he's waiting until our heart changes, until our attitude changes. And we become exuberant and excited about him and about his creation and his kingdom and his future that he has for us. And he says, when you get away from your rebellion and your slothfulness and your lackadaisical attitudes and you seek me with your heart, he says, I can't stand it. I'll turn to you and my face will shine upon you again. And we're anticipating that but we've got to do our part. And it's hard to do. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to keep the pressure on till he gets us where he wants us. And if he doesn't get the remnant, where he wants it, he will put added pressure on. He won't quit until he gets us where he wants us. So we might as well roll with it. You know, let's get where we're supposed to be. 
so that he will ease up and let us do the job that we have yet to do. We'll get to that later on when we get done here. Verse 20, And thus did Hezekiah uh, throughout all Judah work that which was good and right and truth before the eternal his God. Truth is so important. We even speak of his way of life in the church over the years as the truth. When did you come to a knowledge of the truth? As opposed to all the lies and falsehoods that we've been taught as kids and adults and so on, when did we learn the truth about God, about this book? Herbert Armstrong really emphasized the truth. That's why we use that expression. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God and in the law and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with, with all his heart and prosper. So having your heart in it, uh, God will prosper you. And he did prosper worldwide for a lot of years because Herbert Armstrong did have that dogged determination that the commandments of God were in effect and that all these things that we learned were true and that they needed to be kept. So he was very powerful on what it says Hezekiah emphasized here. Well, after these things, uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and came powerful. Uh, we read about that yesterday some, so I won't spend much time on it. Uh, but here's some uh, advice, verse 7. When you're facing the king of Assyria, be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria nor all the multitude that is with him, for there be more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the eternal our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now I remember when the state of California took over the church, but Herbert Armstrong was in Tucson, and he thundered, both in letter and by word of mouth, that God is on our side. He's not on the state side. And he will see us through that, and we will win because of God. Uh, he said that over and over and over. It was a big emphasis. And sooner or later, the state of California went home tucking their tail between their legs. Because God delivered us. But here comes the envoy of the king and tries to tell him, don't you worship God, don't you trust in God, because we've defeated all these nations and their gods weren't able to save them. So here came this thing, and we, we talked about the bride yesterday and how Hezekiah took it. And then the, uh, the black male got worse. And he decided, no, we're not going to do that anymore. So in verse 20, he cried out to, uh, to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel which cut off all the might and the valor and the leaders and the captains in the camp of the king of Syria. And 
who was here, and King went home and died by the sword. So, in verse 24 then, In those days Hezekiah was sick to the death, and prayed to the Eternal, and he spoke to him, and he gave him a sign. Now, this was not mentioned in the account in Kings, but notice verse 25. Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done to him. God gave him 15 extra years, and he turned out not to have the right attitude about it. He rendered not again, or didn't give God thanks for, in the proper way and in his attitude, the benefit he had received. For his heart was lifted up. Therefore there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. They were obeying, they had restored a lot of things, and yet he let his vanity, his ego, his selfishness get to him. Uh, God healed him, he didn't heal himself, and yet he did not give proper thanks and credit to God, and God's wrath came down. Well, in verse 26, he repented. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Eternal came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So because he changed his attitude and became thankful and grateful to God, God did not bring trouble on Jerusalem until after he died. Now, God gave Herbert Armstrong extra life, I believe, nearly nine years. And though everything was not right and correct at that point, uh, the trouble really didn't hit until after he died. And then it got worse and worse, and we went into spiritual captivity, the sword and famine and so on that we went through. So there's a direct parallel here. And I think Herbert Armstrong had gotten the big head uh, to some degree. He he had an ego, uh, and I don't think it's wrong to admit that and see that. And after his heart attack and so on, uh, he was humbled a great deal and realized that he almost died, and he became thankful for life. And God did give a reprieve then during his life. Uh, things didn't really start falling apart in earnest or bite the cots until after his death. Verse 31, Howbeit in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent to him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him to try him, that he might know all that was in his heart. So his heart had been lifted up, and then uh, God left some trouble there to try him, because God wanted to know what Hezekiah's heart really was. That's what he's after with you and me. He lets us have trials, troubles, tribulations, because he wants to know what our heart really is. And spewing us out was the beginning of him finding out. And over a period of time, he's been pondering our hearts. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness... Behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. We read about it in Kings, 
we'll go to Hezekiah now. I mean, to Isaiah now. Uh, then he died. But God, overall, at the beginning of this little history, <clears throat> praised Hezekiah, and he did at the end. So even though his life went up and down, as all lives do, uh, when it was all said and done and God looked back on Hezekiah's life, he said that it was good. And that he was the most faithful king that had been before or would come after. So he went through quite a bit, but God had judged his work good. And I think if we look back on worldwide now, from 1926 and 27, up until its demise, basically, uh, if you look back, a lot of good was done. And I think Herbert Armstrong was essentially a righteous man. He had his problems. Uh, he overcame some problems. We had some problems in the church. They were ironed out. This is Hezekiah ironed a lot of things out and got them straightened out. So I have to look back personally at, at Worldwide and say I'm sure glad I was in it all my life instead of the Methodist church where I started out. You know, what has it done since then? Nothing. Uh, just goes on. So what we're all looking for is at some point God to look at our lives no matter what we've been through and say, overall it was good. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to say, well done, my son, a good and faithful servant, uh, we've all done things we shouldn't do. We've all thought things we shouldn't think. We're working on that day to day to day. And uh, I hope that he can say to us, well done, instead of, I know you not depart from me. There is that danger. Now let's go to Isaiah 36. I'll try to wrap this up. Uh, before 2.30. But we start the absolute prophetic account here. The other was sort of history, or mostly history, with some prophetic overtones. Now God repeats the story for the third time in the book of Isaiah because it is very, very important prophetically. Now, I've been tying in the prophetic side of it as we've gone through these first two accounts, showing that many parallels existed between Hezekiah's uh, life as king of Israel and Herbert Armstrong as our king and counselor, as Michael Ford puts it, here in the end time. But he began the end time work through him, and it lasted for about 70 years. So in Isaiah 36... Uh, he cuts to the chase right away here about the king of Assyria coming up. There were several preludes to that in those other two accounts, but here he goes right to that in the prophetic sense. And I think that the state of California coming down on the church is very, very much a part of that, as we've already discussed. So we'll leave it at that. Uh, Worth repeating in verse 4, Rabshakeh said to them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, thus says, You're trusting in God, uh, and you're going to rebel against me? 
says, you can't do that. Verse 7, but if you say to me, we trust in the eternal our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now, he had broken down the groves and the, the pagan altars and everything, and the Assyrian looked at that and says, well, your God isn't anything. He says, if you'll just do what I say, I'll give you 2,000 horses. All you got to do is provide men to sit on them, and that way you can be part of my war effort. Um, verse 10, And I am now come up without the Eternal against this land to destroy it. The Eternal said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. So he says, You think God told you not to follow me? God told me to come destroy you. That's hope gave way. Uh, verse 16, uh, as offers Hezekiah an agreement by a present, come out to me and eat you everyone his own vine and so on. And he said in verse 18, Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Eternal will deliver us. I can take you back to Isaiah 7, I believe it's 7, uh, where it says that even here in the end time, the Assyrian will come up against us and try to smite us as in the days of Mithraim or Egypt. Uh, but he will only give us... Let me turn back there just a minute. He'll just give us a little slapping around. And we'll uh, be taken care of. Let's see. Is it seven? Maybe it's a little further down. Assyria and all his glory are going to be coming. Come on, I won't call on that. It's okay, but he says he'll just kind of slap you around a little bit and he'll be taken away. So, I am anticipating that we will have a, a little bit of trouble when all this comes. Um, God is not going to just whisk us away without any trouble whatsoever. Uh, I think that there's going to be a certain amount but it will be very, very limited. And uh, just like he came and shook Hezekiah, uh, he's going to try to shake us and try to take us captive. And we know the whole nation is going into captivity. So he's going to try to take us along with it. And uh, we better be close to God and doing what we should be doing and trust him to take care of us. Um I'm back in 37 now. I'll, I'll let that go, but you probably found it. Anyway, this was to be a day of trouble, verse 3 of chapter 37. And again, it's repeated the children to come to the birth, and there's no strength to bring forth. And I think that's kind of the way we were. Um, can't accomplish anything anymore. Anyway, there's a prayer here for the remnant that is left in the verse 4. Then in 6, Isaiah said to them, Thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Eternal, Be not afraid of the words that you have heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. 
Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Now, I think that that was done in type uh, with the state of California. I think that they're going to come against us again. If you read Micah 5, after it says, If you come out into the wilderness, I will deliver you there. And then it says in chapter 5 that the Assyrian will come up against us, as it does there in Isaiah, I think it was 7 or 8. But he will come, and we'll send out eight principal men, and they will defeat the Assyrian. Uh, obviously an act of God, because eight, eight men are not going to uh, stop the Russian, the Chinese, the Muslim army, and everything that's about to come after us. But God will send some people out. That's obviously, I think, after the gathering begins, that that attack will be mounted, and it will be repelled. So, not only has it happened in type, I think, for the state of California, we actually have real armies that are going to come out, and they will have in mind to destroy us, and God will prevent it. Verse 20, Now therefore, O God, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, even you only. Then Isaiah told Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Whereas you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, this is the word which the Eternal has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you and laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at you. Uh, that came in the days of HWA. It's going to come again. <coughs> and we will look to God, the Holy One of Israel. Notice verse 30. This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and the second year that which springs of the same, and in the third year sow you and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruit thereof, and the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward, for out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the eternal of hosts, shall do this. So inset into this history of Hezekiah and in the history of the end time church, out of that which was, and we'll, we've seen scriptures before and will again, out of that which was, there'll be a remnant that takes root downward and brings forth fruit. I think it's interesting here he mentions the three years again, as he did in Kings, because and I'll tie this in perhaps more later, but the 70 years captivity, I do believe, ended in 2017. Uh, 70 years since the college began and began to build church houses, and then we were free to leave Babylon, as we shall see. Uh, and in... Uh, the 430 years of this, that this nation has existed ended in 2017, and now we've had two years since then where nothing, uh, let's say, dramatic has happened. Things have gotten worse and worse and worse. 
But it wasn't until the second year of Cyrus that Daniel uh, and the people of Judah were told that they could uh, begin to go build the temple, and it was the third year that they really got into it. And I think that since 2017, we are now looking at the destruction of this nation coming very soon, and perhaps even by springtime in the third year, uh, God will begin to bless. Uh, that appears to be the case. So it gets the pattern of the past. Just as Ezekiel said there, uh, it is come, it is near, it is come, it is come. It won't be way away like the echoing of the mountains, but it's near. And uh, so he doesn't say right at the end of 430, everything's going to come apart. But he says, when that 430 was ended, it's very close. And I think in the summer of 17, when we had that shadow go across the land at noon, uh, according to Amos, is when this whole scenario began. And it's gotten worse and worse and worse. And probably this year, uh, the third year is beginning since then, we're going to see some very dramatic things happen in this country and around the world. They appear to be starting to happen, even as we speak. So we'll see. But that's inset here in this story. And we'll see about the remnant later on. Anyway, uh, Hezekiah was sick in chapter 38, uh, told he was going to die, and then God told him he'd give him 15 years, and that would be a sign from God, would be the sundial going back. So we've rehearsed that, we won't go through that again for the third time, uh, he had the lump of pigs there at the end, verse 21, and he was healed. So let's go to 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Belsh, uh, Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters in the present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. And Hezekiah was so glad to hear from the king of Babylon that he had been fighting the Assyrian. And God had given him the victory, and then he gets this note from the king of Babylon, and he's all excited that the king of Babylon had sent him a gift and wanted to be his friend. Well, that kind of goes against what he had already been doing. He was glad, and he showed these people everything that he had, and Herbert Armstrong did that. He laid out before them everything that the church was and had and all the buildings and showed them pictures and invited them over and uh, had concert series. And, and it's like he was currying the favor of the world and kind of forgot about preaching the truth, which is what Hezekiah did here. Verse 4. What have they seen in your house, Isaiah says? Hezekiah answered, All that is in my house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed Babylon. So he's kind of proud of it. Okay, then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the words of the Eternal. Behold, the days come that all that is in your house and that which the fathers, your fathers have laid up in store till this day shall be carried to Babylon, and nothing shall be left, says the Eternal. 
And that happened to go larger to God. All the buildings, all the campuses, everything. The jet airplanes, you name it, gone. Everything that we treasured. Even the house built for God. And they had that on the track. The house for God is gone. And Babylonians have taken it over. Is there any greater parallel anywhere than this? He's bringing it right down. Now let's go on. And of your sons that shall issue from you, which uh, you shall beget, shall they take away. Uh, didn't the conscience take away an awful lot of the ministry and a lot of members? And went the rest scattered and went back into various walks of Babylon? And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and uh, those guys were taken there as young Jews, and they were castrated. Uh, they could not have children. They couldn't generate anything. They couldn't do anything in those terms. And the same thing happened to the sons of Herbert Armstrong. Let's read it in Isaiah 56. Thus says the Eternal, Keep your judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come. So this is end time. Blessed is the man that does this, and the son of man that lays hold on it, that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Sabbath is a sign. Neither let the son of the stranger that has joined himself to the Eternal speak, saying, The Eternal has utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Eternal to the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Even to them will I give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And then those who do pollute it will not do there. Now, all right, let's look at what happened after Worldwide. You had many, many groups rise up, some small, some larger, whatever, but they're powerless. They can't do anything. Worldwide came to have a great deal of power with $200 million uh, a year income and radio and television around the world. Booklets and ministries were was trained and going to all the different countries and raising up churches. There was a lot being accomplished. But since then, you look at even the large ones, and they've built some buildings and they've done this and they've done that, but you don't see a massive work being done uh, of any kind. They're basically powerless, like a eunuch. Can't produce anything. And we're among them. But he says, those eunuchs who are powerless, they will keep my Sabbaths, and they will obey me, and will save me, I will give them a place. And they'll be closer than sons and daughters. Bride? That's closer. So, yeah, we all were, became utterly powerless. Can't do anything. What could we do? You want to start a big work? 
How are you going to do it? How are you going to finance it? How's it going to happen? Impossible. Can't be done. The United tried, with a lot more people than we got, couldn't do it. So Jerry Flurry, Dave Pack, uh, Living, you name it. They're just sort of sitting there. People come in one door and go out the other door. And they remain sort of static. And even though they try to brag about how many magazines they're putting out, it isn't anything compared to what was done before. And not only that, there are new memberships occurring. Very, very few. And the ones that do come, usually six months later, will say, ah, this wasn't what I thought it was, or some such thing. So, we're basically eunuchs, all of us, including us. So let's keep the Sabbaths and obey God and see if he will regenerate us, empower us, and give us power that we do not have. He says he'll give power to his two witnesses, and those that are with them will also have power in a place that has not been. So there'll be eunuchs in the palace of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Eternal which you have spoken. He said, Moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. Now, Herbert Armstrong saw trouble coming, but God gave him peace, for the most part, and truth up until the time that he died. After he died, the church began to wither and die in its furrows, as we read in Ezekiel 17, and was transported back into Babylon by a couple of unclean birds and a lead thrown in its mouth, and you haven't heard anything out of it since. Or the same is true of all the groups as well that split off from it, but still were powerless. God hasn't been with their efforts. They haven't preached the gospel around the world as a witness, and the end hasn't come. We're going to see that that yet has to be done. It's not been done yet, and somebody's got to do it. But what he winds up with here shows that all that Hezekiah had done, in some respects, had come to nothing, and Hezekiah even accepted. Oh, okay, so my sons are going to get castrated. Big deal. I'll have peace in my day. A bit of a selfish lookout, or outlook, <laughs> I would say, uh, but he was concerned with himself. So overall, God looked upon Hezekiah's lifetime with favor and said that he was a good man and a good follower of God. And I think that he would have the same thing to say about Herbert Armstrong, even though there were mistakes made, there were troubles, and so on. Uh, overall, a work was done. A calling was made. It was made available to a lot of people. And then, because of problems so the scattered and powerless. Now what's the next chapter? What's the next chapter? Let's stop there for the day.